you can get two of three things. And there's three things on the triangle. There is speed, cost, and quality. So the basic idea being that you're going to get two of the three. So if you want something built uh, really fast at a low cost, the quality's going to suck. If you want something that is really high quality and pretty cheap, then it's going to take forever. on average read 60 books per year. Many attribute their professional success to this persistent quest for new wisdom and innovative excellence. MentorBox makes it easy for you to develop that same high achieving habit of lifelong learning. As a person of action, you know that true ingenuity is the result of deep knowledge. And just by listening to this podcast, you are working toward your goals every single day. If you are ready to wholly embrace this mindset, this 1% better every day, then check in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for new episodes. And if you want to dive deeper into the teachings of our guests, become a member at mentorbox.com today. There you'll find courses from experts like today's guest, Tyler Gage. Tyler, author of Fully Alive, using the lessons of the Amazon to live your mission in business and life. Founder of the recently acquired Runa Tea and Energy Drink Company, Forbes named 30 under 30. He is nothing short of a what I like to call a benevolent monster. You'll hear all this in today's episode, but as a primer, Tyler spent years in the Amazon rainforest, planting thousands of trees, working with the local populations, while simultaneously building a supply chain reaching all the way to the jungles of New York City to bring us to the world's first clean energy drink. A social entrepreneur of the highest order, in today's episode, we will deconstruct, start to finish, what it takes to go from broke college student to the Forbes list, all before your 30th birthday. Sit up straight and strap in tight because today's lesson will surely change your life. Enjoy. Hey, so Tyler, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So let's just get right into it. You have uh, quite an amazing uh, story, especially for your age. I, don't, I think you're about, about my age. How old are you right now? 32. 32. Yeah, we're, we're both 32. So rocking 32. Rocking 32. Uh, <laughs> so you've accomplished a lot in a very uh, short amount of time. You started Runa and obviously you've you know, been all around the world and you're an advocate for social entrepreneurship and you have your book Fully Alive, which we're going to talk about in a bit. But just for those of you who, for those of our listeners who want to get to know you a little bit more than my introduction, Tell me a little bit kind of how you got started in this whole process. It was through a lot of random twists and turns. I feel like from the outside, I often get pegged as this young person that had this super clear vision and marched down to the Amazon. And uh, I think this idea of purpose can seem very linear. However, my path was very circuitous. It was following twists and turns from uh, depression through college athletics, through ethno-linguistic research everything in between that led me to spend uh, a fair bit of time down in the Peruvian Amazon in college, uh, where I fell in love with the botanical traditions, the native cultures, and saw this difficult intersection of, on the one hand, you have these incredible traditions and resources, yet at the same time, these communities really, really struggle to make money and support their families in these, uh, this inevitably globalized society, which is upon them. So I think that that crossroads is really like the main spark that that hit me. And from there was, uh, was really the seed of Runa, the organization and the business that I spent the last, most of the last nine or 10 years building. Great. So how do you go from concept idea? Well, firstly, how did you come up with the idea and then translate that into uh, you know, a real life company? What's that process for you? In many ways, I wish the story was again, more romantic and could, you know, could be one of these where you know, I went down and I drank this magical tea leaf. And as I was, you know, sitting at five in the morning with this tribe, I had this incredible epiphany about bringing this to market and beverages. And in reality, it happened absolutely nothing like that. I first drank, so the tea that we produce with Runa is called Guayusa. It's a native Amazonian tea leaf. It's this really rare leaf that is grown in this one tiny sliver of the upper Amazon. So kind of right where the, 
northwest corner of the Amazon meets the Andes. And I first drank it in Costa Rica uh, with an ethnobotanist there. And my first experience, I, I liked the energy it gave me, but it was one of those things that I liked and forgot about. But for, for a few years, it sort of followed me around um, and drank it here, drank it there. Uh, I had a friend who was interested in maybe trying to do some sort of business with it. And my last semester in college, um, I stumbled into an entrepreneurship class. And our main project was to write a business plan. So I threw out the idea of basically just helping this friend of mine write a business plan for this kind of kooky idea that he had to produce guayusa leaves as like a loose leaf tea. Through several twists and turns, we got really passionate about it. Ended up winning uh, Brown University's business plan competition and then the Rhode Island State business plan competition. And granted, my degree is in literary arts and my business partner degree was in marine biology. So starting a business wasn't really our uh, our MO post-graduation, but we found ourselves with a well-recognized, compelling business plan and something that our hearts were called to. And two days after graduating, decided to pack our backpacks and move to Ecuador to give it a go. Wow. That's incredible. So how did you deal with fear? Because it you know, you write a business plan. We have a lot of, we have a lot of lessons in MentorBox about, you know, how to kind of the nuts and bolts, but that's not a uh, very conventional way of approaching life to just, you know, like you said, move to Ecuador. Yeah. I wouldn't say conventional. I would say the early days were terrifying. I mean, we were, you know, 22 year olds moving in the middle of the jungle and our business was having to build an entire supply chain for an ingredient that had never been commercially produced. So with Guayusa, it was pretty different than even things like coconut water, yerba mate, acai berries, ingredients which people might be familiar with that existed as big industries in other countries that had to make the leap to the U.S., which on its own is no small feat. In our case, there was no commercial production for Guayusa whatsoever. So we had to completely build the supply chain from scratch to the point where these farmers, when we first told them we wanted to you know, use cash dollars to pay money for these seemingly random leaves and put them in drinks in New York City, they would just laugh hysterically and be like on the ground thinking it was just <laughs> such an absurd, ridiculous joke. So that side alone was uh, a lot of work and extremely intimidating, let alone then having to start a beverage company. So a couple things got us through those, especially early days of fear. The first and most critical one for us is we were really big on setting 90-day goals recognizing that when we started thinking about even one to five years of export permits and factories and import permits and just the litany of, of uh, elements that we would need to unfold, it was paralyzing, legitimately paralyzing. So our goal would often become, what do we need to do in the next three months to not have to call our parents to bail us out? And so it was great. We need to build relationships with uh, the local indigenous federation and get a memorandum of understanding with them. We need to plant 500 trees to understand how we can propagate trees in a really basic way. And we need to conduct some leaf drying tests. That's it. If we can do those things in 90 days, we will have made meaningful progress towards the bigger goal. And that was able to help us be really focused and sort of ward off the all-consuming terror of the, the bigger questions. Over time, I didn't know this practice at the moment, but I've become a big fan of fear inventories. Um, but basically in a relatively structured way of just spending time journaling, even for 10 minutes, just sort of downloading either in a specific, around a specific issue or just broadly, all the things that are scaring me, the worst case scenario fears and what it brings up and just sort of letting them go on paper has also become a really useful tool for me to uh, be really honest with what those fears are, give them a bit of space to speak. So they're not cramping my, my nervous system style for lack of a better term uh, under the surface. And the idea there is that once you face them, you realize that the worst case scenario is not that bad and then you get over it. Is that correct? I think that's part of it. I feel like part of it is giving them, giving those fears space. So I think so much of, you know, a lot of the uh, indigenous shamanic traditions and spiritual traditions that um, I've studied deal a lot with the shadow. And one of the basic teachings that I've encountered that seems quite prevalent across different practices, this idea that as you lean into the shadow, that by um, giving it some attention and some recognition, it actually opens the full space of who you are. So it's sort of taking something that's kind of like compressed and then causing friction in the corner, giving it more space to be what it is. And that alleviates the 
pressure and irritation and like gravity of what that thing is. So to me, it's not necessarily magic magic bullet of, oh, I recognize that fear. Now the fear is gone. It's saying, okay, that fear now has space. It had its own opportunity to speak. And now it can be in a healthy relationship and healthy order with the rest of my thoughts and the rest of my life. So by giving it a voice, it sort of takes away its more like extractive power on my attention and my awareness. Wonderful. So how did you deal with funding? Because obviously you were, this is not the modern era of, for example, MentorBox using a series of software programs that are relatively speaking cheap, you know, a hundred to $400 licenses for an enterprise, combining them together with a video team. And, you know, voila, you know, it's not that difficult to create a startup these days. Whereas you are literally manufacturing a physical product in the real world, which is not the fast to market kind of fast pivot version of Silicon Valley startups, at least these days. So how did you deal with the the funding of that and kind of the, from what I imagine would have been like a slow burn to get started? It was extremely scrappy. And we definitely decided to build a very capital intensive business from the get go. And part of what made that business tricky is we had to raise and spend quite a lot of capital just to build the infrastructure in Ecuador before we ever sold the product. And then, you know, building beverage brands and consumer packaged goods brands is notoriously very expensive as well. So we were, uh, we were fighting a very heavy burn from the early days. So with the funding, we originally started just scraping every single friend and family we possibly could for even uh, very small amounts of money. I think one of the unique-ish things that we did was be willing to take even $5,000 investments from people. You know, we didn't really know many people who could write a fifty dollars or $100,000 check. But in the early days, five or 10 grand here, five or 10 grand there could get us by another month. I would say that for most of the first three years, we rarely had months where we had enough money in the bank account to finish the month. <laughs> so it was constant um, rolling investments. We had a convertible debt round. I'm a big, big fan of convertible debt for early stage enterprises, which gave us a lot of flexibility where we could meet people, friends of friends, friends of friends of friends of friends of friends who liked what we were doing and could invest even a small amount of money in the vision. So the convertible debt was key. The other unique part of Runa is we created a hybrid organization. So we believed that by having an organization that was half for-profit and half nonprofit, we could have a platform to most effectively accomplish this bigger mission we had of improving livelihoods for these farmers and supporting conservation, something we thought we couldn't necessarily do as just a business, though, of course, the market-driven business approach was the leading edge of our sphere. What that also did in practice and in very nuts and bolts terms is it gave us nonprofit funding sources to complement our for-profit funding sources. Rather than just being dependent on investment capital, we could get grants that could help support some of this impact work that we were doing, recognizing that a lot of the money we were spending to get the business going wasn't just, hey, let's make a for-profit company. It was, hey, let's improve land management techniques for these farmers. Let's help them get organic certification. Things which, of course, we're going to help our business, but we're at that intersection of social impact and development with business. So the compliment for us really helped of having uh, both those sources. And over time, I think we've tapped almost every single type of for-profit or nonprofit funding you could possibly mention. Uh, you know, we've been really lucky. Our, our funding has ranged from a lot of family offices. We, we uh, raised a lot of money from family offices. Um, over time, we've been able to raise a bunch of money from uh, some big celebrities who have been really big supporters of the company, Channing Tatum, Leonardo DiCaprio, and we're able to organize some unique alternative equity structures as well to uh, both create more impact and innovate uh, within the funding space as well. Yeah, it's incredibly unique. Um, I, I imagine you have some good lawyers along the way. It seems like that would get fishy. Yeah, I mean, it uh, it definitely takes a lot of attention. So much of it is the clarity. You know, I think there there is a bigger movement around these hybrid organizations that are tackling social issues in a sort of sisterhood relationship between the two organizations. The biggest thing is clarity. So conflict of interest policies, 
broad understandings of where funding is coming from, where is it going, which can get murky. So being hyper, hyper clear on that. But generally speaking, as long as the nonprofit dollars are going to clear value chain activities. So we talk a lot about value chains as opposed to supply chains. So value chains that are clearly creating broader economic good and benefits to communities, the environment that go beyond just the company. The other interesting thing, which is just a bit of an uh, oddity, and I think reflects the changing landscape broadly of how business, business and nonprofit worlds are being thought of, some of the biggest grants, like just free money we got early, actually came to our company. Because increasingly so, a lot of the bigger funders are saying, we don't want to just give money to a nonprofit that's going to do an isolated project. What we want to do with our, our dollars is give them to companies that can do something really specific to improve their business capacity and their supply chain that then can benefit more farmers. So the line is also blurry where even some of the free money we got came to the company because these funders said, hey, we want to create impact. We want to create more opportunity for farmers. And if we can make businesses stronger to buy more, to be better partners, that that's probably the most sustained way to uh, benefit the farmers in the first place. So a lot of, a lot of tricky, blurry lines in that space. Yeah. I, I mean, I love the idea of social entrepreneurship and there's no, it's a continuum, right? You know, there's obviously the massive corporations who don't care about anything other than their bottom line and then all the way to a nonprofit. And I love that there's this continuum that's being created of companies that, you know, are 40% this, 60% this, 70% this, depending upon the year or whatever. And Obviously, it's a more sustainable model. I really love the idea. Do you call it social entrepreneurship or is there a newer name? No, social entrepreneurship, social enterprise, this thing is a good, a good title. Of course, there's many, many, many different forms of that, as you noted. And it's something that I, over time, have both issues with and see the opportunities. I, I think there's a lot of greenwashing going on in the space. And sure. some of the organizations calling themselves social enterprises are in some way, but are more businesses with a, a sort of minor impact tacked on. And on the other side, to me, the gold standard is organizations that fully operate as a nonprofit, yet do revenue generating business activities. Because to me, and this has been a lot of the complicated confluence of waters we've dealt with at Runa is we've had conflicting interests of being a business with a lot of for-profit investment and our mission. And those are not easy things to juggle. And we by no means are a perfect example of the harmony of the two. And in my view, if you're 100% a nonprofit organization, you have no shareholders, you have no need to distribute dividends, anything, but you're engaged in business activities, that's, that, that to me is the gold standard of someone who says, I only truly care about my mission. If you have access to that kind of capital, that to me is like really the, the full bar. I think if you have, if you're a for-profit company with a bottom line and investors, there is an inevitable weight that that is going to bring you in the direction of, I need to return money to my shareholders. And there's a inevitable cap, no matter how elastic on how far you can go to create impact. Yeah, I completely agree. So next question, how did you eventually go to market? And then what were your metrics that you were paying attention to in the early stages? So we originally decided to launch loose leaf tea. So we decided to launch loose leaf tea. Then we launched tea bags. Then we launched uh, iced teas, like glass bottle iced teas. And then ultimately what's the vast majority of our business now is what we call a clean energy drink. So it's a energy drink alternative to a Red Bull. We say it's uh, clean energy from a leaf, not a lab is our, is our basic proposition. But early on, we didn't have the capital or the wherewithal to launch in that ready-to-drink beverage space, which is, needless to say, competitive and expensive. So the loose-leaf tea, we literally just hand-packed <laughs> loose-leaf tea blends in my business partner Dan's apartment in Providence uh, and started selling them to friends and family, You know, printed some labels on his inkjet printer and, and got them out there. Uh, very scrappy, uh, more scrappy than, than we should have been in retrospect, but it was, uh, uh, it was a product that we could sell. Uh, so that was our, our very first start. We then were able to launch our tea box line, which we, through some bizarre stories, which I tell in the book, were able to get into Whole Foods, uh, hustled that for a while, um, and then launched the rest of our products. The biggest piece of our support strategy in the market was sampling. Uh, we were then, and I'm still a huge believer in product sampling. 
you know, I think in our world, you know, you mentioned before some of the differences of more tech-based software models versus when you're selling a physical product. I think in the, in the food and beverage world, there's obviously a lot of attention on social media and digital marketing. I'm a big believer that if you have a good product, there's little more you can, there's fewer more effective tools than getting someone to try it. It can be expensive, definitely requires capital, but we are big believers in particularly in-store sampling. So being those annoying people in Whole Foods of the, hey, you want to try a, a new Amazonian tea? And getting that product in people's mouths so they could taste it, they could feel it, they could hear the story. That was a big, big, big part of what got us early traction. Do you think that you were benefits of timing or were you aware of the timing of how society is sort of moving in the direction of anti-obvious BS sugar and a bunch of ingredients that we don't know what the hell they are? Or... You know, did you anticipate that going into it or did you, do you think there were a lot of competitors that were doing the same thing? Like kind of what made you successful versus someone else? We were very aware of the trends for sure. And even with our business plan in college, we saw very clearly we were at the intersection of these trends of uh, consumers being interested in unique ingredients, consumers being interested in organic certification, Uh, all these different things in the similar bucket, but they came together and what we were trying to do. The idea of healthy energy and clean, healthy energy drinks, there were a couple products on the market then, but even still, there hasn't been a brand, Runa included, that's, you know, become a multi-hundred million dollar brand that's really hit it out of the park. Yet in the beverage industry, I think everyone across the board agrees it's one of those holy grail opportunities that's inevitable. And the direction that the market's moving is just a matter of, of time and execution. Where we stood and stand in the unique space is that rather than just saying, instead of you know, artificial synthetic caffeine, we'll use organic caffeine and just straight organic sugar that we were sourcing something that really had, and in my view, a spirit and something that was truly coming from nature in a whole form that had a story, that had a legacy, that had something that was really real and had longevity to it. Uh, and that was a big part of, of what we were trying to do. And that, again, that idea of energy from a leaf, not a lab, is where we were putting the uh, putting the mark down. So, how did you approach um, branding and marketing in that way? Did you just double and triple down on on that unique value proposition? And how did you articulate it it holistically for your entire brand? It took us a while, and it's something I think we've done. A, okay job on. I actually wouldn't say we've done a phenomenal job. It's one of the tricky things in our space where there's so many things we can talk about. And early on, we talked much more about the impact in Ecuador and the benefit to the farmers, because that's what we cared about. That was our, our passion. Yet it, we found through a lot of sampling and talking to consumers that it wasn't the, uh, what we called it, the what's in it for me for consumers. What we discovered was that what people loved is this was a clean, sustained energy source for them that they could drink at 11 a.m., 2 p.m., which is where most people drink Runa. You know, they drink coffee in the morning, but don't want that second or sixth cup of coffee. And it gives them that, that clarity, that lucidity to get through the rest of the day in a more smooth and sustained way than a cup of coffee. So super clear, obvious need state, clear timing, perfect delivery system for that. So as we saw that, we were able to focus the messaging much more around that idea of that um, late morning, early afternoon sustained energy and could focus more of our marketing and our communication around that. Um, This idea of clean energy came from uh, one of our mentors, uh, this awesome marketer, uh, this guy, Richard Kirschenbaum, who kind of saw that that idea, rather than just going to like, let's do natural energy or organic energy, which could sort of fall just in that uh, crunchy-ish direction that we felt like clean had a resonance across the board, not just from the sourcing and the product formulation, but from the consumer feeling, the freshness to it, the brand attitude. It gave us more full dimensionality in a single word to rally behind. So what was your process for brainstorming that? It Was it fast? You know, Was it like you know Bob Dylan writing something on a plane and it's just brilliant? Or was it a conscious decision where you sat down and said, we're going to come up with, you know, the right, the right words and the right brand strategy over the course of a week. Did you go on a, on a vacation together? You know, what was your process of coming up with the, the approach? 
well, broadly speaking, it's been just grinding and banging our head against the wall for long, long periods of time of how we bring these pieces together and trying a lot of stuff. On the other side of the spectrum, the phrase clean energy came from Richard's genius head. You know, Richard has just an incredible background. He he came up with the idea of Wendy the Snapple lady. So he was like the force behind oh, yeah. uh, like Snapple back in the days. And is this just um, very eccentric, very bright uh, marketing branding guy. So he invested in the company and then took on the project with um, with his team. And he just brought up clean energy. Uh, just one of those things where it just popped popped forward from his distilled wisdom and, and resonated immediately. So that specifically was uh, more of an epiphany type moment in a broader process of a lot of grueling confusion for years and years on end. So who do you think about, what do you think about when you're hiring? What are, what are the attributes that you are looking for? Because obviously you hired a lot of people, whether it's, upper executive management or all the way down to people that are working in the, I guess, in the farms even, or, you know, the manufacturing facilities, you know, what is your approach to, to hiring and building kind of a team? It varies. It varies by position. Uh, even for us, it's varied a lot by country. You know, the culture that we had in Runa in our office in Brooklyn was pretty different than what we had in Ecuador, just given cultural context and a variety of other factors. For me, one useful frame that's been critical across the board, but definitely for more management positions, growing up, my dad uh, would tell me about this thing called the architect's triangle. Do you know what that is? No, I have never actually heard of that. It's so funny because I feel like I talk about this all the time and most people don't know what it is. But to me, it's like, it's just such a useful thing for business. But basically, I guess architects have this thing where they say that if you want a project done, you can get two of three things. And there's three things on the triangle. There is speed, cost, and quality. So the basic idea being that you're going to get two of the three. So if you want something built uh, really fast at a low cost, the quality is going to suck. If you want something that is uh, really high quality and pretty cheap, then it's going to take forever. So you basically kind of pivot around which kind of makes a lot of sense for pretty much any project and you can be pretty conscious from the get-go of, all right, I'm willing to spend a lot of money because I need it done quick and then the implications of that. Um, the quality's not going to be great, but the quality's going to be good. Hey, hate to interrupt this conversation with Tyler Gage, but I do want to let you know where you can get even more entrepreneurship advice from us. If you're enjoying this lesson with Tyler Gage, then you'll love our Entrepreneur Academy, where CEOs and founders just like Tyler break down their keys to entrepreneurial success, though it's only available for MentorBox members. If you want to access that and much, much more, be sure to visit MentorBox.com. Okay. Back to the show. I feel like through my non-trained business mind, I noticed through a lot of early hiring that there were kind of three categorically different types of what people interchangeably use the words leader, manager, and entrepreneur, which to me, again, not having any frame of reference for this, I felt like those are pretty different things. The idea of leadership, management, and entrepreneurship. And the different people have different natural proclivities to each one of those. So for me, the way I define it, I think about entrepreneurship as the resourcefulness. It's that scrappy ability. It's that ability to think creatively, make stuff happen, pull ideas and execution out of seemingly thin air. The management function is really about execution, accountability, precision, in the weeds, making sure that order is followed, that mindset, that capacity. And leadership for me is really about vision. It's about being able to rally people behind a shared idea, look down the road, decide where to go, set direction, set strategy. And uh, through some terrible hiring decisions and ways that we saw different people growing in the organization, um, it became very helpful to think about what was needed in each role. So whether it was a marketing manager role or a VP of operations role or CFO role, to me, it's always helpful to think what, what of those fundamental approaches is going to be most helpful? Is this a role where I just need somebody? I need to say, you know what? I have the plan. Here's the plan. Do this precisely. I need more of a manager type. 
And for me, it's relatively easy to suss out where someone is. I mean, generally, you can sit down with someone for 10 minutes and get a pulse on how they operate, how they think. Um, or is this a position where it's like, man, I need this whole project figured out that's really unclear and there's a ton of variables and I need someone who is scrappy and can think across the board and can move quick. I need someone with more of an entrepreneurial capacity. Um, or you know what? I, I need somebody to just take charge of this whole thing, build their whole team, have a vision, have, have them be someone people can respect and follow. I need someone who's more of a leader. And in the architect's triangle, often I game for two of the three. I think usually you get maybe one to 1.5 of the skill sets right. uh, in a hire. But to me, that framework has been really, really helpful. Lots of other little things we could talk about, but, but I, I find that's, that's usually pretty helpful to share. Which one do you think you are? If you can self-assess. I'm definitely more in the entrepreneur leader spectrum. I probably think my, my strongest suit is the entrepreneurial piece. Um, I think I've learned to be a much better leader and can have that, that focus and, and get people to uh, rally together for a shared goal. I can force myself to be a good manager. It's definitely not my, my normal uh, aptitude. Yeah. I, I find that a lot with a lot of founders. They're like, you know what? I hire for that. So uh, if you could go back and talk to your younger self when you were just getting started or throughout the process, is there something that you would uh, tell younger Tyler? There's, there's a long, long, long list of uh, desired information. I, could, I wish I could put on a hard drive and jam into his head. <laughs> um, Maybe and something that's more of like an underlying architecture, you know, yeah. basically trying to get at something that's maybe, you know, the way that you thought about the world or, you know, a, a framing or a habit or something like that. And it's so tricky because, I mean, I think I reflect a lot on this and so many of these different pieces are very interwoven, very, very interwoven. And it's also difficult looking back at our journey to separate true naivety um, and inexperience from the parts of myself that I feel like were very egoic, were very desperate, and were extremely impatient. So, and the, all that is very mashed together in the, in the seed of it. But one of the things I look back on is, and even like the business ventures I'm involved in now, I'm not, I'm not desperate. And I think back to like specific bad decisions, specific bad hires, bad paths I decided to go down. And almost invariably, there was a meaningful feeling of desperation where I felt desperate. I put myself in a corner and I made a decision from desperation. And we were so attached to making this work and didn't start from a place of, I mean, I like thinking about it as like just sobriety. Like we were kind of deluded by our own need and, and passion in a way, both in good ways, where if we weren't so deluded by our passion, we would never, ever, ever worked as hard as we did to, to make it real. And there's a certain weakness and blind spots that we created by not being willing to look at things as they were and say, you know what, this really isn't working. We need to be more patient. This really isn't working. We need to make a move as opposed to what I think a lot of early entrepreneurs get into is the, this isn't working. It's going to work. We just got to push harder. And we did a lot of that push harder. And in a lot of ways, we were able to squeeze things through um, where maybe they shouldn't have without the grit. And in a lot of a lot of circumstances, we pushed hard in a way that was ultimately detrimental. So if I could sort of wave a magic wand, I would say having the capacity to be more... Um, I mean, it, it leads to being more patient um, and more discerning, but it's maybe fundamentally a hmm, like a rightness in myself to, to trust the bigger process. Are there any daily habits or rituals that are just sacred to you now or, you know, have been for a long time that you put on a pedestal and say, this is one of the reasons why I'm efficient or kind or compassionate or, a good leader or whatever it may be? As much as I'm a big proponent of practice and ritual and, and have, uh, I think a pretty deep toolkit and different avenues that I, I lean to on support, uh, onto for support. 
there's really few things I do on a consistent daily basis. Um, I like to mix things up a lot. I like to challenge routine. One of the the things that is very, very simple, but I'm big on and probably 90, I'd say 90 to 95% successful with is not looking at my phone for at least 15 to 40 minutes when I wake up. It's one of the things that I feel like is so simple, but has a meaningful, palpable impact on my day. I find that if I go, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very big into dreams. Uh, it's a, a big part of my practice and sort of approach to life. Um, and even just what that means for us as physical bodies of being in a dream space and, and being asleep. I find it extremely jarring to go from that restful dream space to digital world, to bing, 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 tax emails, to-do lists. Um, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's kind of the like emotional, physical equivalent of being like, great, I'm going to go from zero to a hundred real quick or the opposite. Um, and that leaves a lasting tone in my nervous system throughout the day that I'm less settled, uh, kind of per the prior point, I'm more agitated. I'm more prone to quick decision-making and less grounded in who I am, what I care about, how I want to operate. Um, so I would say that simple thing is something I'm really, really big on. Uh, yeah. So let's say it's on average a half an hour, you know, it's okay if this is too personal, but is it, are you doing a meditative practice? Are you just having, you know, a cup of tea? Are you reading the newspaper? Are you, you know, what is the, what is your general procedure? So it varies. Um, at least at the moment, my morning pure meditation practice is not great in full transparency. Um, I would say it is often drinking tea, drinking tea and breathing that is meditative ish, but not like on my cushion in a, in a focused container. Sometimes it can be something as simple as watering some plants, just anything that I'm just conscious of to say, all right, I'm just going to breathe, look around, make sure my eyes get used to looking at real physical objects that are not my computer screen. Take some breaths, move my body a little bit. Could be stretching, could just be talking to my wife for 20 minutes. Um, just something to make me feel human um, and have my mind orient to 3D reality. Be like, all right, th this is the grounded place. This is where my body lives. This is where my heart lives. And then from this place, I can get into phone calls and emails. Um, but needless to say, I drink a lot of tea. So tea is <laughs> almost invariably involved in that morning space in one form or another. Do you have a time that you normally wake up? I don't. Again, that's something that I'm, I'm very flexible on. I mean, I've also kind of reveled as of late in not having my nose to the grindstone. Um, and I've been between, you know, having sold the business and I have a baby coming in a week or two. So especially last... Thank you. But the last bunch of months, it's been like, you know, if I can sleep until 930, <laughs> I'm going to sleep until 930. If I have to wake up at five, I'll wake up at five. But um, at least in this moment, I'm not in a, I'm not in like wartime. So I, I don't need to be in the like, no, nah, I got to get up at five. Otherwise I'm screwed. I've been more in the like, yeah, some days I got to wake up at five. Some days I can sleep in if I really want to. Um, so I've, I've really enjoyed having that flexibility and have definitely been in a recuperation mode. Well, you've obviously earned it. Can you tell me a little bit about the the process for exiting? Yeah. So with Runa, many variables there. Um, you know, we recently sold the business to Vitacoco, the very large multi-billion dollar uh, coconut water company. Um, the founder and CEO of Vitacoco was one of our investors and was on our board of directors and tracked our business closely. We got to know their team really well. And as particularly those energy drinks started to pop, um, Mike Kerbin expressed an interest in, in making a, an offer for the business. Um, and the deal ended up being a great option for shareholders. Uh, they're so, so good at selling beverages. I mean, among, among players in the industry, they're, what we saw is that right fit where they're a relatively large company, though, of course, not Coke and Pepsi that has still a very strong entrepreneurial spirit, um, but has access across the board. Um, it could be that nice hybrid of really smart entrepreneurs who have the weight and the scale. So that was, that was the basic alignment. And did you obviously need to make sure that they were in, how do I say this, political alignment or, you know, that you, you knew that they were going to keep the brand 
to what you originally intended? Yeah, and it's something that we knew from a very early stage of the few things that we had quite proper foresight on was that our basic proposal was not to be a cause marketing initiative. Our proposal was to build our impact into the core operation of the business. So we designed it so that all the leaves had to come from what are now several thousand farming families in the Amazon, in Ecuador. So that to basically get the leaf and bring it to market, you had to create impact. It's not like a, a one-off sort of a thing that some corporation or some new executive could decide, oh, we're just not going to, we're not going to fund that 2% donation. Right. Um, it's, it's in the DNA of the business. Beyond that, it's in the DNA of the brand. So a big part of what they recognize is that the, the core value of the company, which is ultimately the brand, is inherently connected to the mission, to the purpose, to the reason that we exist, which is not your everyday beverage company. So from just a sheer value point of view, the, the fundamental strength of what we have is connected to how we do business and why we exist, which it would take a pretty ignorant executive to say, oh, no, no, we can easily just, you know, cut the legs off this thing and it's still going to walk. Yeah. So obviously we can get to fully alive and we will, but is there anything that you're working on right now that you're excited about? Obviously having a baby is big enough, but you know, what's, what's your current venture? Uh, the baby's a big one. Um, involved in a handful of different things right now. Uh, launching another beverage company with some friends in LA uh, in the spring, which I'm excited about in another, another beverage in the sparkling direction, spending some time on that. We're doing quite a bit through our nonprofit, through Runa Foundation. We're spinning out a couple other companies from the nonprofit. Our executive director, good friend of mine, is spinning out an Andy and Mezcal company, uh, which is a super, super cool venture, uh, working with these women producers up outside of Quito in Ecuador. Um, we're spinning out uh, a research lab to do some more refined research on different Amazonian plants for dietary supplement use. So those ventures I'm quite excited about. Also supporting uh, another amazing entrepreneur in Ecuador who has a venture called Cara Solar, which is making solar-powered boats for Amazonian communities who have to usually rely on gas and oil to fuel their boats when they're in an epic fight against oil companies. So really phenomenal project uh, creating independent, autonomous, solar-powered transport systems in the Amazon. So yeah, all, all sorts of great stuff like that that um, get to support from a distance. That's wonderful. Um, it's like you're at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the top. So you're going to look back and say, okay, what can I do now? I love it. Depend, depends on the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably an oversimplification, but nonetheless. So let's talk about Fully Alive. Um, Obviously, great book, Fully Alive, Using the Lessons of the Amazon to Live Your Mission in Business and Life. You can get it on, obviously, Amazon. Um, audiobook as well, uh, read by you. How was that process? It was fun. It was really fun. I mean, it's also such a cool experience to then write something that you sort of forget to some extent all the ins and outs of what you wrote. Yeah. And then you get to get crammed into an audio studio for like 16 hours straight and have to read the whole thing back to yourself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was fun. Uh, so what are some of the, the key takeaways from Fully Alive? Obviously, everyone that's listening to this, um, you know, in the show notes, you can get a, a link to either the audiobook or the book itself or even the Kindle version. But, you know, but is there kind of one big holistic approach, someone that's going to read it? You know, what's, what's the pitch? What are they going to get from it? So in Fully Alive, I really look at this specific intersection of that spiritual taproot with the world of business and this process of designing and launching a venture. And I fundamentally believe that in the world of possible human experiences, probably being a parent is, is uh, on a parallel ground. I'll, I'll uh, be diving down that wormhole shortly. But a core component of building a business is building yourself and learning about yourself. And there's this inextricable way in which launching in, uh, something from a dream into reality challenges and confronts the edges of who you are and who you think you are. And the two connection points that I make in the book are looking at these Amazonian spiritual traditions and shamanic practices and paralleling that to entrepreneurship around this fundamental question of how, how do we navigate chaos? How do we relate to these situations where there isn't clarity, where there's some edge of 
personal potential of direction in the world around us? And how do we find deeper resources and use our full range of uh, analytic and intuitive capacities to navigate those challenges, uh, both personally and professionally? So the book goes through a lot of um, my stories and, and work with Runa and relates handfuls of different tools and practices along this vein of, as we talked about a bit, leaning into the shadow, relating to the challenged parts of ourself to find deeper meaning and deeper purpose. Um, yeah, so it, it's a great read. I, I, I try to write something that's super vulnerable. You know, I opened the book when I almost got kicked out of Runa by my board um, and try and really get into the practices and tools and sort of ways of understanding self from this incredible heritage of Amazonian tradition, which in a seemingly bizarre way spoke so specifically to those moments of confrontation and challenge and being at the edge that, you know, those of us who are in, who are building a business or in any professional setting that just requires that additional edge just felt so relevant and, uh, and helpful too. Yeah, I have to say, honestly, I love that this is a conversation that we're happening, having as a society. And just even in the last year, if you're listening to this and you like or are interested in Michael Pollan's new book, you know, How to Change Your Mind, or even Aubrey Marcus, Own the Day, he talks a lot about kind of that edge, um, that shadow, or even Jordan Peterson, you know, the kind of, he talks about chaos a lot and, and in a more of a mythological way, but these are, you know, books that all came out this year that are around this idea. Um, and I think the great thing about Fully Alive is that it's probably the most personal account of any of them. Um, and therefore, you know, I think also the most fun. So I really encourage everyone that's, that's listening to this to, to obviously go grab it. I very much appreciate that. So is there any, uh, you know, last words, our audience are generally, you know, people who are looking to either change their lives from, you know, six to an eight, or they're already killing it and they're looking to hyper optimize, you know, nine to a 10. Is there, is there something that, that, you know, you kind of final last words? I'm big on curiosities. It's something I pay a lot of attention to and, and find myself recommending a lot. I think this idea of finding your passion or that thing that's this blatant calling that comes out of thin air is, is actually really misleading. Um, and even if it's a small edge of additional growth, I think we're often looking for those things that have that immediate intuitive resonance or that clear synchronicity or something that's, um, that's much more bold and overt. Whereas in the shamanic traditions, it's all about the subtle. It's about paying attention to those things that are just, just unformed, just behind the curtain slightly, just sort of nudging or whispering in a, in a way that takes a certain attention and awareness to be able to tune into and then follow the thread in, in a certain direction, which will likely lead in an unexpected way. So I'm a big fan of having, um, uh, inviting people to be more intentional about what are those things that are just under the surface that they've kind of thought about here and there that for some reason they have some minor or major curiosity about and being intentional about doing that. So people even writing down five or 10 things that they're curious about and whatever the most random, the most random things ever of, you know what, I'm just really, really curious about what is it about Steph Curry's shooting technique that makes him able to like release so quickly? Like what, what about his technique does that probably available on the internet or, you know, there's a guy I met a while ago. I just keep thinking about who um, was from Southern Brazil and this one part and told me about this amazing beach and what, whatever, just random, 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 or it could be very technical about work, but rather than being like, Oh, I wonder about that, which I think a lot of us do. Oh yeah. That was kind of cool hearing about that. Taking five or 10 minutes to say, no, I want to dive in and learn more. And I think there's this translated, there's this translation that often happens of, um, you know, a great example uh, is in Nike, where the sort of original idea for tread on the bottom of a shoe um, from Onitsuka in Japan, their original partners, came from the founder looking at sushi and seeing the suction cups on a squid, a squid tentacle, and sort of making that immediate connection of, oh, that translates to this other thing. And I think when we get exposed to different types of disciplines, different mechanisms, different ways of solving problems, 
that there's very often this unexpected translation back to the main problems that we have. And we can be very short-sighted and looking in the one-dimensional way, going deeper in our own world without finding that cross-dimensional transversal inspiration and, and ways of digesting information in a unique way. So all that to say, people feel like writing a short list of things they're curious about and spending even short periods of time diving deeper. Uh, it could lead to uh, very effective and engaging different layers of life. Wonderful. Well, Tyler, I really appreciate you coming on. I, if you're really going to be in Los Angeles for your next venture, we have a studio in in Los Angeles as well as San Francisco, and I'd love to meet you in person and you know maybe shoot some videos uh, for our MentorBox uh, members so they can get to know your face as well as your voice. So hopefully we can we can manage that in the future. Would love it. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation there. Uh, and thank you very much for coming on. And uh, and hopefully we'll see you soon. Hopefully see you soon. Thanks so much again for the time. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts, as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring, and we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.